On Tuesday night, we'd been working out of a book by a guy named James Kugel, and he's talking about poetry in the Bible. And this past Tuesday night, after I stumbled around for about 45 minutes, I finally figured out what he was saying, and I want to talk to you about the soul or the spirit. In the Old Testament, the Tanakh, those terms are sort of used interchangeably. I'm going to use the word soul. Sometimes it means what Christians mean as spirit, sometimes it means soul. It's associated with breath. So you have nefesh, neshama, ruach. It's associated with the heart, the sort of the center of your being. And it is regarded as something that God has given and that will go back to him upon your death. And once I figured out what was being said, it's sort of changed my perspective on some stuff. And what I want to try and do is see if I can bring you along to that understanding. When we went through Massar, those of you who did go through Massar with us, what we discovered is that there are parts of you that are not accessible to you. Modern psychology calls it, for example, the subconscious. When we were doing Musar, we called it the nefesh, which is the part of you that's separate, and then the shama, which is the spirit. And in the Bible, when it talks about words that are translated as soul or spirit, Sometimes it's just a poetic way of saying, I. In other words, it's used that way. Sometimes, however, it's referring to something that isn't accessible. For example, in Psalm 42.5, which is the one we studied on Tuesday night. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And the word there is nephish. And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So what the poet is doing there is he's talking to a part of himself that is sort of separate from himself. Another example in Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my mind is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. The idea here is there's something inside of him that is upset. And he's talking to God, and he's crying out to God, and he's asking God to comfort and heal him. But it's not something that he does directly himself. Proverbs 20, verse 27. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching out all his innermost parts. So the idea there is, and the term that the author of this book uses, is a double agent. In other words, he's in you and he's part of you, but he's also got loyalty to God. And the example used by the rabbis, it's like a man who married the king's daughter, and he sets up his household and he does stuff, and one day he gets really upset and beats his servants and just throws a big temper tantrum, and he goes in and talks to the king later, and the king says, why were you upset and why were you mistreating your servants? And the guy says to himself, how did he find that out? So he goes back to his household and says, all right, who is ratting me out to the king? And his servants look at him and say, "Uh, hey guy, you married the king's daughter. She's the one who's talking to him. 
So the idea then that your soul is like the king's daughter, the king being God. And marriage is a really good example. And I will use Kay and I as as the example. For you women, just reverse the genders. It works both ways. I live with her. We are one flesh. I know when there's something wrong with her. She doesn't have to say anything. I know when there's something wrong. I know when she's happy. I know when things are going well. I know when things are going badly. It's just something that the two of us know. Sometimes, you know, we talk about it, of course, but sometimes it's just, oh, is there something wrong? And then, yeah, yeah, it usually is. So the marriage analogy is really a good one. And it's one that we can understand, at least those of us who've been married or lived in a family or lived closely with people. You can tell who people who are really close to you are feeling, but they're not you. So the idea of the psalmist knowing that his soul is upset is perfectly understandable, but the soul is not entirely him. It's the king's daughter. So she's talking to the king, and she's also talking to him. And the thing that is interesting to me is, first off, the soul needs care. Just like a husband or a wife needs care from the other. And one of the things that you can do as you go through life is you can damage your soul. The poster child for that is David. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed, the recording of that is in Psalm 51, where David says, Against you only have I sinned, creating me a clean heart. In other words, I have damaged my soul by what I have done, and I need you to repair it. So as you go through life, you have this part of you that you don't have complete access to. You know what its state is. I mean, as I say, it's like a marriage. You can tell when there's something wrong, when there's something good going on. You can tell. But you don't have direct access. And by your actions, you can either damage it or you can build it up. Now, what I want to talk to you about in that context is generosity. I was planning to talk on generosity anyway, and then Tuesday night sort of changed my perspective on the whole thing. Generosity is a soul trait that can either be strengthened or diminished. And as you go through your life, I will suggest that the reason that you want to practice generosity is because it builds up your soul. Now, when we talk about generosity, there are several ways we talk about it. There's two kinds of giving. There's sadaqah and nedavut. Sadaqah is commanded. Your tithe and all that kind of stuff, that's commanded. Nedavut is giving from the heart. It's giving because something in your spirit or your soul wells up and causes you to want to give something. Sacrifice is, by the way, the same way. So when the temple is in operation, or the tabernacle is in operation, some of the offerings are commanded. You know, you got the Yom Kippur offerings that you got to do. You got the Passover lamb that you got to slaughter. There's a table of required sacrifices. But there's also the possibility of bringing voluntary sacrifices that are not commanded. Those are up to you. The idea there is when your heart is full or your heart is 
downcast, depending on what your situation is, what you would do is you would come into the presence of God with a sacrifice. And you would say, my heart is full. I am joyful because of what you've given me. Therefore, I want to express my joy with this voluntary sacrifice. Or conversely, I have been really scummy. And I want to come before you, and I want to express my contrition. And I want to ask for forgiveness. Those are both voluntary sacrifices. It's the same thing with generosity or giving. Sometimes it's commanded. You know, there's tithe, and they're all listed in the Torah. And sometimes it's simply an expression of a full heart. Now, there's a Hebrew phrase, and again, most of you have heard this, called timtum halev. And what it literally means is a stopped-up heart. And someone who is not generous is regarded as having a stopped-up heart. In other words, you are designed to give. You are designed in the image of God. God gives. God is generous. The ultimate gift, of course, being his own son. So if you want to have your soul reflect the image of God, what you want to do is you want to teach it how to be generous. I mean, there's lots of things you want to teach it. Don't get me wrong. It's not just generosity. There's a bunch of other stuff. I'm focusing on generosity. And what the Torah does, and I never had thought of it this way, and I think it's really cool, you know, all of these laws that you have in the Torah you got to do this, you can't do that, you can sleep with her, but you can't sleep with him, you know, all that kind of stuff. What I will suggest to you is that is all basic instructions to prevent you from damaging your soul. Because remember, David, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed Uriah, damaged his soul. And so what all of these nitpicky little rules that you have in the Torah, I mean, there are lots of reasons for it. Don't get me wrong. It's not exclusive. But one of the ways you can look at all of those things is this is sort of keeping you out of the area where you're going to damage your soul. Keeping you from doing damage to yourself. And, oh, by the way, to other people, too. You don't steal from somebody. You don't damage that person. But you also don't damage yourself. So if you look at the commandments in the Torah in that light, a lot of them make a whole lot of sense. Now, doing no damage is sort of Torah 101. Going through life and not doing any damage is good, better than damaging stuff, but it's only Torah 101. What you really want to do is you want to take the king's daughter who is within you And you want to build her up. You want to exalt her. You want her to become someone who when she goes back to God, God will look upon you as, wow, you took really good care of my daughter there. It's all over the Tanakh, all over scripture. When you die, your soul goes back to the God who gave it. That's scripture. It goes back to the God who gave it to you. So what you want to do when you are returning the king's daughter at the end of your life is you want the king to look upon this daughter who you have returned and say, you really took good care of her. And she's going to report on it, by the way. And you want it to be a good report. So base level is don't damage. 
But that's just the base level. What you really want to do is improve and build up. Let's talk about education for a minute. School. The purpose of school is not school. The purpose of school is the career that you're going to embark on when you get out of school. Now, don't get me wrong. School is important, and school can be enjoyable, and school can be miserable, and all those kinds of things. It's a period of time that you have to go through. But as you're going through it, the purpose of schooling is not schooling itself. It is whatever you're going to do when you're done. It's the same thing with your life here. And here's important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting here's not important. But the purpose is what are you going to do afterwards? It's like education. And this is a place where you're trained, you're conditioned, you're put to work, you do all sorts of stuff. And the goal there is what is it you are going to then take into the life ever after and what is that going to be like? So if during your education you copied other people's homework and you didn't ever do any of the lessons or any of those kinds of things, when you finally get to the point where you're out in the world doing whatever you've been trained for, you're not going to be well trained. You're not going to be very good at what you were supposed to have done because you didn't learn the lessons here. It's the same thing with your soul. There is something beyond this. And what this is, is preparation for that. And again, don't get me wrong, this is very important. I, <laughs> I do not want you to say, well, this is not important and I'm just moving through and boy, when I get up to the next place, then it's really going to be cool. There's lots of people that have that attitude. That attitude is wrong. This is important. But it's important in the same sense that schooling is important because it's preparing you for something else. So generosity then is training for your soul. Now there's two kinds of giving. One is commanded, the other was from an open heart. One of the things that Yeshua says, and this never made sense to me even though I preached on it before. Hey, just because I preach on it doesn't mean I understand it. In Luke, Luke 6, lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. And last time I talked about this, I said, that's contradictory. Because if you land expecting nothing in return, how can you then look at a reward? Because you're expecting a reward. But if you look at it as training for your soul, then it makes tremendous sense. Because you're giving generously out of an open and flowing heart, so you're giving expecting nothing in return. And what Yeshua is saying is that this daughter of the king that you have with you, when you do that, will be built up. So the reward that you get for the building up of your soul is the payoff for giving expecting nothing in return. Now, there's a couple of reasons for giving. Lots of reasons, actually. Sometimes it's commanded. Sometimes it's what you would call enlightened self-interest, sowing and reaping. Both Ray and I have talked about this for years. You sow expecting a crop, and that is absolutely true. Nothing wrong with that. That's good. 
But what you're doing is you are sowing, planting seed, giving, expecting a material return. How many preachers do you know that say, boy, if you give extra into the offering, it's going to just flow back upon you abundantly? Ever heard that message? Sure. What that is, is giving to receive. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And the reason God sets it up that way, and the reason God commands it that way, is for training. And physically, the stuff you do determines what your character is going to be. If you behave generously, if you behave kindly, if you behave righteously, all of those kinds of things, if you work to behave that way, eventually your character will catch up and you will become that way. So the idea of motivating you, all right, if you give, you're going to get back a hundredfold or sixtyfold or whatever the fold is. You're going to get a return on this investment that you sow. Nothing wrong with that message. But what the object is, is to get you in the habit of doing that. So at some point, instead of giving because you are expecting a return, you are now giving because your heart is open and flowing. And again, do not get me wrong. There is nothing wrong with sowing expecting a return. That's a good message. But understand, it's also practice in righteousness. And what happens eventually is some point you heart turns over and you're now no longer giving with an expectation of return you are simply giving because your soul is flowing generously and that's what Yeshua is talking about when he says land expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great as I say until we started talking about the soul as as if you will a double agent (laughs) kind of like that term which is the term the guy that wrote the book used Until I sort of understood that, a lot of this stuff, you just do. And it's good. And it's wonderful. But when you finally see that what you're doing with all of this is you are, if you will, bedecking the daughter of the king with good because she's going to report when she goes back to dad. And for the next stage of your life, which happens after you assume room temperature, you really want a character there that God is going to be pleased with and you're going to be pleased with. How many times have you heard, oh, if I'm just a gatekeeper in the house of God, that's nonsense. What you want to be is you want to be one who is rewarded by the king when you come into his presence. You don't want to skate in there with your tail feathers on fire. That's not the way to live. And there's lots of people that live that way. That's not the way to live. What you want to do is you want to build up and train your soul in the case of generosity. And I'm using generosity as an example. I could have used righteousness. I could have used any number of other things. And in fact, probably in future messages, I will. Because I really like the concept. But what you want to do is you want to come into the presence of God and have the daughter of the king say, Ah! That's him. That's the one I was with. That's the one who has built me up. That's the one who has taken such good care of me. That's what you want her to say. Not, well, son of a gun was a drunk and a womanizer, but he's here. You don't want her to say that. I find that idea really compelling.
because it gives you a purpose for all of the stuff that you're doing because God says it's either do it or says it's a good idea. I mean, some of the stuff he says is just a good idea, generosity, for example. Some of it says do it so that you don't damage yourself. Avoiding damage is okay, but that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to have the daughter of the king say, look at him or look at her. I'm